Good morning. Very excited to have you with us on this Sunday morning. One quick announcement before we get started, uh, and it's an announcement of many-fold uh, things. So uh, I don't remember. Do you have the slide? <laughs> Here you go. Okay, so some, some people have asked about the Seder meal and wondering why we haven't mentioned the Seder meal. Well, this year, uh, because the Jews don't really consult with uh, the Christians um, about their Easter uh, Passover celebrations, I don't know why we're still there uh, with them, uh, because they go on the Hebraic calendar, obviously, and Easter is moved around by the lunar calendar. This year, it is not even close uh, together. So the Seder meal is going to be April 30th. Uh, you all need to have your eyes checked. Uh, it's can everybody else see that? No, just me. Okay. Uh, it's 6 p.m. here in the CLC. Tickets are ten, or $12 this year, 10 and under, eat free. Uh, there are child care by reservation. To, uh, it's Dana Hawks, dhawks at org. Can you all see that? Is it me? Do I really need to get my eyes checked? Is it all of a sudden? Perfect. It's perfectly clear up there. Thanks, Jason. Uh, and then uh, you can purchase, t- purchase tickets. Stacy's back there by the blue table. Um, she can help out with any information. There's also a class. If you have never been to any of the classes that where we talk about um, why do we care about uh, Passover? Why do we do the Seder meal? Uh, we're, we're Christians. We're not Jews. So why do we do these things? Well, there's a reason that we do them. Daryl Smith, excuse me, Dr. Daryl Smith. Uh, is uh, teaching his class once again that uh, that he has done multiple times, um, and he, it is in the parlor, seminar, seminar room, five o'clock. The seminar room is the, that's the one down there, right? Yeah, <laughs> the one down, uh, down on the uh, the west wing, and uh, five o'clock tonight he will tell you all about uh, all about that. And there's some more opportunities. I think David Niski is teaching on this as well throughout the week. Again, Stacy will have all this information should you uh, to care to know more than I know, which. Really wouldn't be that hard to do, clearly. Uh, so there you go. S- Seder is coming. Uh, it's just going to wait a little bit. So today is Palm Sunday. And uh, a few weeks ago, if you were here, I told you that we were done with the love series uh, because I wasn't really paying attention to the topics coming forward because I was going to be off the next week. Um, I knew that I would be down at Rockport and I didn't care about what y'all were going to be doing here in this room, um, to be honest with you. And I hope I hope you're OK with that, because uh, you know what? I need a break every now and then, too. Uh, and so I didn't even look to see what was coming up. I was just like, I'm going fishing. Um, and I did. And it was great. Uh, but uh, so we're still in the love series. Uh, all that to say, we haven't left the love. Uh, I can feel the love in here. So it's great. But today uh, we're going to talk about Palm Sunday and how that corresponds to it. So Palm Sunday is, as we said, this celebration, right? It's a celebration of when Jesus enters uh, Jerusalem. Uh, A lot lot of translations of the Bible will have it marked as the triumphal entry. And we talk about it in in terms of that. Last year, during this time, a few people in this room and myself were in Jerusalem. And we were were there for this moment. And so every time, I've taught this many times. Um, I, I have heard it many times, this story, the triumphal entry, all these things. I've never been there. And we were there right at this time, right at Passover time. Uh, we were there for the, the time, essentially the triumphal entry. We were there for the, the time in the garden. We were there for all of this stuff. So it just like was like heavy, cool heaviness while we were there. But we're there and we're sitting in this area up where the, the Garden of Gethsemane would have been, this olive uh, or orchard. 
and we're looking down into the old city. And we're seeing the way that Jesus would have triumphantly entered and what it would have looked like for him to come in. Now, we have the gospel accounts and we have the stories of what happened when he entered into the city. Right. He comes in and he's riding on a little uh, a little colt, a little donkey thing. He's coming in and people are, are laying their cloaks on the ground before him and shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, Hosanna, Hosanna. God save us. God save us. And they're they're waving as the kids just did these palm branches in the air. Hoshana, Hoshana. And as we walked in, so we, we kind of follow the path that Jesus would have taken as he entered the city. And, and we walk in, and, and I have these words just echoing through my mind. Hoshana, Hoshana. And, and you have to know that it was the time of Passover. So Passover is one of those celebrations in the Hebraic life that you get to Jerusalem to celebrate it, right? You, you cut, people come from all over the place into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. The population would swell by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So you have this crowd of people. We were there just before we left, right before the rush of people for Passover came. So we didn't, we saw kind of the beginning bubblings of people coming in, but we didn't see the, the huge swelling of it. But imagine these tiny streets. If you've ever been uh, to Jerusalem or ever been to a, a European type city, an old city, uh, they're all narrow streets, right? They don't have big old boulevards. It's like narrow streets. This is where you are, and you have people just covering each other. And here comes Jesus, and there's something that stands out about him. And so they begin to shout, Hoshana, Hoshana. But the thing was, they, they didn't get it. See, let me tell you a story about what they were doing. If you have a Catholic Bible, you might have included in there that they call them the apocryphal or the deuterocanonical books. And included in those is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees. And these books are the story of the Maccabean Wars. It was wars that, uh, that occurred between the Jews and some oppressors. There was a general Maccabee uh, who stepped forward and became the leader. And he led the people of Israel to freedom. This is the celebration of Hanukkah. This is what is celebrated during the Festival of Lights. They were remembering this Maccabean War. And, and so it's a, a glorious time, a glorious time when the people of Israel were being oppressed they were being uh, closed in on, and they stood under the leadership of General Maccabee, and he drove them out, and they were free once again to be God's people. When he entered Jerusalem after his big victory, people laid cloaks upon the ground. He came riding in on this colt, and they were waving palm branches and shouting, Hoshana! Hoshana! God saved us! Just like you did with the Egyptians. Hoshana, palm branches. They're so cute and wonderful when the kids come through. Picture instead a machine gun. Because they're symbols of war. These palm branches were symbols of war. This Hoshana, God save us, wasn't this peaceful like God saved us. It was like, God, come on. You don't mess with God's people. We will destroy you. So when Jesus comes in and the people begin to express themselves in this way, it's like, oh. 
They still don't get it. They still don't get it. See, they're looking for this Messiah to come in at this big moment in the life of Israel. This this moment where you celebrate the remembrance of, of bringing you out of slavery into freedom. Well, it's a perfect time for the revolution to happen. It's a perfect time for the Messiah to raise up as this military leader and to destroy the Romans. Yes! Hoshanah! But that's not what Jesus was doing, right? Remember in the book of Matthew, which is my favorite uh, book of the Bible, um, we talk about it enough in here, I guess. Uh, In the book of Matthew, Jesus is time and time again, Matthew saying that setting Jesus up as He's the Messiah, but not that Messiah. Like, he's the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that you're expecting. Even John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, if you remember the story, is there at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, hence why we call him John the Baptist. He baptizes Jesus, right? Jesus comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit, it says, um, descends in the form of a dove. Merahephet's there. And then, um, and, and then the voice of God says, this is my son kind of a big deal, right? I mean, you would think if you're there and you hear this, it's like, whoo, John the Baptist is forever going, oh, oh my gosh, you really are the son of God. Because when you came out of the water, I remember hearing the voice of God say that you're, you're my son. But what does John do later? He sends his disciples, his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been looking for? Remember, John is in prison at this time. His life's about to end and he is desperate. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah that we've been looking for? Why do you think maybe he was asking that question? Because Jesus wasn't acting like the Messiah should act. What is the answer that Jesus gives the disciples? Go back and tell them. The blind see. The lame walk. The sick are healed. Yeah. I'm the Messiah. There's multiple mic drops, I think, in Jesus' life. This is one of them. He just walks off. Yeah. Yeah, I'm bringing the kingdom of God with me. But not in the way that you think. This isn't going to go down how you think it's going to go down. It's not about violence. It's about love. And so when Jesus walks into Jerusalem... And these people are trying to get this violent revolt going. Hoshana! Hoshana! No. That's not what we're doing here, guys. Yes, I'm the Messiah. And yes, we're about to bring a kingdom of God on this place. But it's going to look different. Now, I want to talk about the events of this week. We're going to fast forward and go all the way... um, to Easter, but I'm going to take a little tangent here and talk about when Jenna and I first started dating. Did you see that? Totally saw that coming, right? Totally saw the segue. Okay. So when Jenna and I first started dating 16 years ago, um, the first time I saw her was in this room and I knew that she was the one for me. I'm not going to tell you how other many girls that I saw that had the same thing with, but she was the one, you know, I, I walked in like, yes, that's her. I love that joke. It 
She never likes it. Um, so, I, I, so, you know, we have, this, uh, we have this thing. We start dating. We start figuring this stuff out. And at the beginning of our relationship, she couldn't, um, you know, she just kept calling me and, like, let's go to lunch, you know. And she couldn't keep her away. I'm like, dude, lady, give me some space here. Um, you know, I, I got, you know, it's not true at all. Um, she really, she was, uh, it was more her parents going, shouldn't we take Michael out to lunch um, after church? And she's like, no, I don't really, uh, yeah, let's take Michael out to lunch. So I have her, my in-laws to thank for my marriage, uh, which is really weird. Uh, and, and so we have this thing going on, and, and I knew that there would come a time when I would have to do something. I knew that there would come a time in our relationship because I really did fall for her quick. It was less than a year before we were married. And, and I knew that she truly was the one. But I knew if, the, if that we were going to have a healthy relationship and a strong relationship, I needed to open everything up. I needed to show her everything about me. So you think about it is, um, Jenna, like, grew up in this church. Uh, like went to the, she was the FCA or all that stuff and, and did all the, you know, youth stuff, whatever. And, and was just, and then she went to Baylor and she was one of those Baylor students, if you know what I mean. Um, and she loved Baylor and she was a T-bar-in person um, from the time she could walk until she was one of the lead counselors and just was all, all about Jesus all the time. Gave her life to the Lord at age four, didn't look back. I, I went to A&M and then A&M and I broke up, um, because I drank too much. And so I failed out. I grew up going to an Episcopal church, kind of, uh, I was more into athletics and the things that went around all that kind of world than I was going to youth group, um, go to A&M, fail out. I decided to get my act together and stop partying so much, so I went to the school formerly known as Southwest Texas State University, which, as we all know, is clearly not known for partying. <laughs> I mean, they changed their name. We're now Texas State. We don't have a party atmosphere. Okay, changing your name changes the atmosphere of the river campus. No. So um, I, I, it just got worse there. Uh, but I actually um, graduated um, and then and then moved on with my with my life and um, ended up here teaching school and in this room after having been on a mission trip and my life had changed and I was a different person. Who I was was no longer who I was going to be or who I would become. But she needed, she needed to know who I was. And so I took her one night. We were going on a date and I brought her into the prayer chapel, chapel because I felt safer in there. Because um, everything's bolted down in there. You can't throw stuff in. Um, and so I, I took her in there and I just... Here's who I am. This is my story. I'm serious about you. But in order for us to move forward, I've got to get really vulnerable. I mean, it was in my power to not tell her anything. Because I had moved around so much as a kid, I don't, I don't talk to anybody from my high school days. I don't talk to anybody from college. We moved around so much that wherever I am, that's where I am. And so the people around here didn't know my story. Nobody could come and go, man, you should have seen him in college. Man, you should have seen him in high school. Nobody knew. And I could have carried on the way that I was then. The way that the person that I had become and who I was trying to become. More and more a, a person in God's image. 
was in my power to hide that from her. But that's not relationship. That's not love. Love is saying, this is who I am. Opened up. And from there comes strength and relationship. The differences in our stories are are remarkable. We used to talk about beauty and the beast. I'll let you figure out who's who. But God brought us together. If I didn't have that moment, I don't think we'd be here 16 years later. We wouldn't have the strength there. See, true love is being open and vulnerable, even if you have the power not to be. True love is saying, take me, all of me. Here I am. So Jesus enters triumphantly into Jerusalem. He goes up to the temple. He does a lot of teaching. He does different things. Um, He turns some tables over, gets a little angry about some stuff. He goes back uh, to the garden. Uh, We're we're speeding through this pretty quickly here. Uh, He goes to the garden and he uh, goes to pray with uh, the three, right? He goes in and goes, hey, hang out right here. Pray with me while I go a little bit deeper into the garden. He gets intense prayer with God and he says, God, if you can remove this cup from me, remove it. But not my will. Yours. Three times he goes back in and he's just like, oh, and he comes back out. He's like, okay, let's do this. Here we go. And he walks out. And as they are leaving the garden, here comes Judas with the temple guards. And the temple guards walk up to Jesus and the crew and his crew start, you know, bulking up like this. And Jesus goes, here I am. Come to do what you were supposed to do. So why are you bringing an army? You think I'm going to fight you? Why didn't you take me in the temple? You're doing this because God has had this plan for a while. Let's just make it happen. So they take Jesus in. They take him over to Caiaphas' house, the chief priest. And Caiaphas has this kind of um, trial. And they start shouting insults at him. And and Caiaphas eventually says, um, are you the Messiah? And Jesus in one one, uh, uh, gospel says, that's what you say. <laughs> you, you said it. I didn't, but I'm not going to deny it. And Caiaphas tears his robe. You know, he gets all blasphemy. Crucify him, crucify him. They start spitting on him. They start hitting him. They bind him up. We don't know what happens to him that night, but we can assume that they stuck him somewhere because the night passes the next morning early. They drag him to Pilate's house. Pilate is the governor of the Roman area. Pilate is the only one who can crucify someone, which is what the Jews want him to do. And they bring him and they throw him down. They're like, crucify this guy. Pilate's like, why? He called himself the son of God. Pilate's like, I don't care. I don't believe in your God anyway. Woo. Uh, and he go, and they go back and forth like this, but the Jews are in, remember the population of, uh, of Jerusalem right now is like loaded, overloaded with people from everywhere. And they got them into this fervent, just, you know, the crowd mentality. Crucify him, crucify him. On and on again, Pilate's job is to keep peace. This isn't peaceful. He's like, fine. He tries multiple ways to get out of it, but he eventually goes, all right, fine. He orders him to be flogged, the whip, and then handed over to soldiers to be crucified. Now, if you ever read the gospel accounts, and they all say it, that Pilate says he was ordered over to be flogged by a whip with lead ends or a cat of nine tails, and then handed over to the guards to be crucified. It's a throwaway verse in there that is hugely significant to me. He's ordered to be flogged. Let me tell you what this looks like. 
You're tied up, stripped down. Somebody, and it's not a small person, comes and has this whip. On the end of the whip are, is lead or nails or sharp things. There's multiple things of them, like cat and nine tails, right? And you lay into the person. Whap! You start at the top. And you work your way down the body, the back of the body. Whap! 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 Every time those medical sharp, those metal or sharp things, whatever they were, dig into the skin, ripping flesh, muscle away. 39 times. From the top to the bottom. People didn't live after that. They give him the full 39. It rips open his back. It goes down. It rips open his, his buttocks. It rips open the back of his legs all the way down into his calf muscles and just rips open his calf muscles. He was handed over to be flogged. You see how that needs to be a little bit more? From there... Two accounts say that he took the cross himself. Two others say that someone helped him. But he's given the instrument of his eventual death. And he is told to walk up a hill. Now they don't know the exact path that was taken. But while we were there, we took one of the paths that is legendary. Like this is the path. There's about 20 of us. And we're standing in a straight line like this. As to not get lost. Because it's narrow. There's people everywhere. There's turns. You're going upstairs. It's just this winding route. Picture it during the time of Passover. The place is packed with people. People upon people upon people. When they see someone coming through, they don't know what's going on. They see three people coming through who are been flogged and are carrying this thing. They're criminals. What do you do to a criminal back then? Throw stuff at them. Spit at them. Hit them. Mock them. Shout at them. All through this place. I can't imagine that he had the strength to walk after what he went through. Yet he picked up that cross, the beam, and he walked. And he carried it. And he goes to the hill. And they lay him down on top of this wood and they put nails through his wrists. A nail through his feet. And they raise him up into the air. You know how you die? By crucifixion? Suffocation. Suffocation. Your body, you have to determine, is it more painful to hold myself up by my wrists By my feet or to allow my body to sink down and to have my ribs crush my lungs. And so there he is. An innocent man. His body torn to bits. In unbelievable pain. At about noon. It gets dark. The skies go dark. At about three, Jesus says this.
My God, why have you forsaken me? And then he was gone. You talk about vulnerability. You talk about a love that is so great and amazing. He was willing to open himself up and say, here I am. He had the power to stop that. He had the power to change things. He's God's son. He's God. Yet for the love of us, he became completely vulnerable. To the point of being tortured in unbelievable ways. Hung on a cross. And die. It is finished. That kind of vulnerable love, that kind of love is a love that says... Come to me. Let me open myself up so that we can have something strong and amazing. What God is doing for us is opening himself up and becoming completely vulnerable so that we might know how much he loves us. Jesus says on the cross, one of the accounts, it is finished, as I just said, but here's the thing. Not yet. Not yet. If you're like me and you love Paul Harvey, you love the rest of the story. Let me tell you, the rest of the story is awesome. But it's also next week. (laughs) Do you slap your leg like in awesome? That's greatness that you wanted to hear. You're like, come on. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who loves us so much, wants us to know how much he loves us, that he became completely vulnerable for our sakes, that he left himself completely open for torment, for torture, for pain, for suffering. For an excruciating death. He became vulnerable so that he could show us he loves us. May we respond to that vulnerability with vulnerability of our own, opening ourselves up to you, Father, that we might build a relationship with you that is strong, enduring. That brings us life eternal. Father, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.